We're going to open up to to Exodus chapter 1. I almost said Acts, didn't I? Acts. We're in Exodus now. Exodus chapter 1. But did you show up? Maybe you don't have a Bible. We'd love for you to follow along with us. The second book in the Bible. Go to the beginning. And then Genesis, Exodus. That's where we're going to be. And I have to tell you, I am excited to study the book of Exodus. And I I want to forewarn you, it's going to seem like we're not going to get there this morning. It's going to seem like, uh, are we ever going to actually read anything from chapter 1 in Exodus? I promise you, We're going to get there. We're going to cover chapter 1. Yes, it's a little bit of a longer introduction this morning as it's, you know, an introduction into a book. But we need to kind of pick back up with where we're at. So prepare yourself. A little bit of a longer introduction, but I promise you we'll get to the text. But pray with me as we we just approach God's holy and awesome word. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And God, we, we just submit ourselves before you. And the beginning of a new book, God, the the beginning of a new year, the beginning of a new decade, the beginning of a new book. And and Father, we just know that you've got some awesome truths to teach us. You've got some things that you want to reveal to all of our hearts as we study this book. And God, I just pray, my heart just prays, God, for, for three things specifically, God, that we would finish what we start. That God, you would give us the strength and the supply of your spirit to finish what we start as we just embark upon this journey that you would see us through. And Father, I just pray too that... God, you'd speak to us. You'd reveal yourself. We want to know you more. We want to grow in the wisdom and the revelation that is you, Jesus. And so, God, reveal yourself to us as we study this book. And then thirdly, Lord God, I just pray that that we would all just desire to be doers. That we wouldn't just desire to come here and hear a teaching, but we would be excited to come here and hear and then leave and do, respond in obedience to what it is that you're showing us, Lord God. We just lay those things before you as we embark upon this new journey and just ask God, see us through. Come fill us all with your Holy Spirit. You be the teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned before, I'm excited to get back into the Old Testament with you all on a Sunday morning. It's been a while since we've been in an Old Testament book. We, we went through Matthew for a year, and then we were in Acts for a year. And so it's good to be back into the Old Testament. We love the whole Bible here at Calvary Chapel. We want to teach the whole counsel of God's Word. It's all good. So we're not just like a New Testament church, right? We are a whole Testament, both old and new. We want the entirety of the Bible. So that's why we're back here in Acts. But I I want to just try and set the stage a little bit of of not only what we're going to see, but how we're going to approach the book of Exodus. And and one of my favorite things to do is when we approach an Old Testament book is we love to try to seek and find Jesus on every page. Jesus in every chapter, Jesus in every book of the Old Testament, to just find Jesus in it. And you think, well, that's a great idea. Where did you come up with an idea like that? Well, listen, that wasn't my original idea. We got that idea from Jesus himself. Jesus gives us, his people, the license to try and find him on every single page. Jesus says this in John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders, right? The scribes and the Pharisees, those experts in the law, those who had the five first books of our Bible, they had it memorized, right? But Jesus says this to them, John five thirty-nine. He says, you Pharisees, scribes, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify about me. When Jesus says this, you search the scriptures, the scriptures he's referring to is what we call the Old Testament. That's all the scriptures that were there. So he's saying, you're searching these scriptures, you're reading them diligently, you're memorizing them, and you are missing me. 
Because all these are there to testify, to affirm, to declare, to reveal who I am, Jesus says. That's what this book is all about. That's what we want to make sure as we study the book of Exodus, we don't miss Jesus. And we're going to pull him out as often as we can because he's there. But Jesus is going to say this again in Luke chapter 24 in a conversation that he's having with a couple disciples as he's traveling on the road to Emmaus. Now, this is after his crucifixion and after his resurrection, but these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they don't know that. So they're bummed out. They're thinking it's all over. Bummer. Excuse me. We thought Jesus was going to be the Messiah, but turns out he's not. They don't know that he's literally walking and talking with them in this moment. But Jesus says this, where Luke records this. Luke says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. But think about this statement. Jesus is giving the most amazing commentary on the Old Testament. If you ever had, if you ever have a favorite book when you're a kid and you get to actually meet the author, you're like, wow, like that's, that's a whole new realm of importance when you meet the author of your favorite book. They're walking with the author of life. They're walking with the author of the book, the one who breathes the word into existence. And he's giving them the commentary. But look at what he's doing. He's expounding, unfolding, explaining the deeper meaning, showing what has been shadowed in the Old Testament, pictured in the Old Testament, types in the Old Testament. And he's saying, these things were all here concerning me, Jesus says. They've all been to bring about who I am. And when, he, when it says, beginning at Moses and the prophets, he's speaking about the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. I missed them up. Oh no. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those five books of the Bible. It's harder than you think. I thought I, I, I had those down. All right, I wrote them down though. There's probably a good acronym. Ask Miss Jen. She's probably got a great acronym for the kids and we could all learn from some of those things. But Jesus, notice here that Jesus affirms that Moses is the one inspired by the Holy Spirit to record those books. You, you can get into a long debate about who wrote the book of Exodus, who's the author inspired by the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you, Jesus' words are good enough for me. When Jesus says Moses wrote it and he refers to that and the other New Testament authors do, I, case closed. The, I rest the case. There it is. But, but just notice that's what he's doing. He's expounding the text concerning himself. And I would just imagine knowing what the book of Exodus this is all about, I would just guarantee, safely guarantee, Jesus spent a chunk of time on that road of Emmaus talking about the book of Exodus and as it concerns himself. Think about Jesus being the Passover lamb. We have the Passover pictured, shown, given in the book of Exodus. Think of Jesus being the fulfillment of the law, the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. We have the law given in the book of Exodus. Think about Jesus being the redeemer, God's redeemer. We've got this incredible picture of redemption throughout the entire book of Exodus. So I'm sure Jesus spends a chunk of time sharing with them who he is through the book of Exodus. So we're going to see that. That's what we have ahead for us as we go through this book. So I don't want us to miss seeing Jesus, finding him on every page, finding him in every chapter, extracting the pictures and the types and the shadows of who Jesus in our day, looking back now, has been the fulfillment of. So be prepared for that. We're going to do that. But I also like just the journey that God has taken us on as a church. When I think about being in 2020, and I think about for us this February, it'll be four years since my family and I have been up here with the incredible privilege of being a pastor here at this church. And so we're kind of looping back around, and I was kind of looking at, at all these different books that we've studied together and the journeys that we've been on. And most importantly, what God shows us about himself through every single book of the Bible. 
And I was remembering when I came here, we started, we were in the book of Genesis. And I love how the book of Genesis really shows us there is a God and he is the creator of all things. He is the covenant-making, promise-keeping God. But, but that's what the book of Genesis showed us. He is creator. And then we went through the book of Nehemiah and I loved learning that, that God is the one who can make all things new. Not only does Paul quote it in these here that, that in Christ we are a new creation, but I love the book of Nehemiah because it says God is the one who can rebuild broken things. I love that. God is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. He can rebuild broken things. Read the book of Nehemiah. And then we we studied through the book of Daniel. And I love that because we learned that God is the one who is willing to get in the fire with us. I love that. You may be going through a fire or a trial or a difficult time. Jesus is willing to get in the fire with you. We have the book of Daniel that reveals that to us. Then we went through 1 Samuel and we learned that Jesus is the only one with the title prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is all in all. We learned that in 1 Samuel. We studied through the book of Esther and we learned that that it seems like God is hidden sometimes. Right? The name of God is not mentioned in the book of Esther directly. And so it seems like he's not there. It seems like God is hidden sometimes, but really he's always present. Hidden, but present is what we learn about the Lord through the book of Esther. Then we went through Matthew and we learned that Jesus is the prophecy fulfilling Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the coming one who has come and will come again. We went through the book of Acts and we talked about how Jesus is Lord. He's the head of the church. He birthed the church. It was his idea. He's the head. He's the builder. He's the architect. He's the chief shepherd. And then he sends his Holy Spirit to equip and empower and indwell and fuel all of us for the ministry and the mission that he set us on. And now we're here at the book of Exodus, and we're going to learn, just see the central theme of this book is the redemption of God. And I love that. I so need to be reminded of that, and maybe you do too, that God is a redeemer. That God is able to buy back things that seem like they have been lost. Seasons that seem like there's nothing good that's possibly going to come out of them. God is able to redeem them buy them back for our good, for his glory, and show us that he was working through them the entire time. He can do that. And that's what we're going to to look at. In fact, the the first four chapters that we're going to spend the next four weeks talking about, you're really going to kind of see this theme setting the stage for redemption. You're going to see God setting this up and showing us what redemption really looks like. How how God defines redemption. And I, I want to encourage you, church Christians, please don't just breeze past that. I think some of us, we can look at the book of Exodus and, and we can say, well, I know the book of Exodus. I know the events. I know the high points. I know the peaks of the book of Exodus because it's probably one of the most well-known books of the Bible, at least, at least the gist of what's going on. But I, I'm really asking you, please don't just breeze past that. And I'll give you two reasons why. Number one, God's got something more for you. There's always greater depth, right? You're never like, I've learned everything there is to know about God. Have you ever said that? Repent, right? Repent. No, you don't. I do not. I feel like I've just tipped the iceberg on the wealth of wisdom and knowledge and grace of who our God is. And so I hope you have a good basis and some understanding on the book of Exodus. And then I hope you're willing to go even deeper beyond the surface because God has greater truth for you. So don't just breeze past that. But the second reason why I don't want you to just breeze past that because this idea of God being a redeemer, this idea of God setting up a great redemption, it gets solidified forever through the events that we're going to read about in the book of Exodus. What's going to happen through this time is going to solidify this truth. I mean, just consider this from the Jewish perspective. 
Those children of Abraham, those descendants, the the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish people, from the Jewish perspective, just consider this. If there is no exodus, where would their claim be that we are the people of God? If they're just left in Egypt and over time just assimilate to no longer be Jewish, but they're just Egyptian now, they're not called out and shown to be God's chosen people. They're not called out and delivered through a great and mighty outstretched arm through the wonders of God. Where would their claim be? Right? We wouldn't have one. We'd, we'd have some unfulfilled promises and we'd all be scratching our head about how's God going to do that, but we don't have to do that because we have Exodus. We have God saying, this is what I'm going to do. And again, from our perspective, this is what I have done. But I just want us to know that moment, this moment, the book of Exodus and what we're going to to be reading and studying about over the next however many months, this great redemption, it is going to be looked back upon over and over and over again to say, this is the God who delivered you from bondage in Egypt. This is the God who reached out his righteous right hand right out of heaven and intervened. This is the God who fulfills his promises. This is the God who parted the Red Seas. This is the God who brought down his plagues upon the, the possessed the occupiers, those in Egypt. And that's all what gets set up here. So it's beautiful, it's important, it's necessary. But that's what we want to see. We want to understand there is an exodus for the people of God. There's an exodus for the people of God. Then there's an exodus for us now. And this idea of exodus, it means it means to exit out of a tough situation or to exit out of the place that God no longer wants you to be. There's an exodus for the people of God. And I want you to know that is true physically, that is true spiritually, that is true when we trust the Lord with that situation, to depart from that. If you found yourself, I've been in a season and I've been walking on a path for too long and I just want out, there is an exodus for God's people. There's an exodus for you. You do not have to continue to go down that same path because we see who God is through this book. So the, the significance of that cannot be under understated. I don't want us just to breeze past that. The book of Exodus testifies and declares that great truth. God is our Redeemer. God is our Exodus. And I just want to show you just a couple Psalms and actually Psalms and, and Isaiah to be able just to kind of solidify that this, but there's a a man named Asaph, and he's a worshiper of God. He worships God in song. David is going to set Asaph up in his own house, David's house, as a worshiper, someone to sing praises to the Lord in the presence of David. And Asaph is going to be inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen some psalms. But Asaph writes this. Now, this is hundreds of years after the Exodus that we're about to study. Asaph says this, Psalm 77, verses 14 and 15. He says, You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among your peoples. You have, with your arm, redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. And and this is, again, Asaph speaking of the Exodus, speaking of the historical fact of God's response to the cries of his people in an action of great redemption. You are the God of wonders. We can pray that still today. God, you are the God of wonders. You are the one who with a mighty outstretched arm has delivered your people. Isaiah is going to write this almost a thousand years after the historical event. Isaiah 51.10. He says, Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? 
Isaiah talking about the same deliverance, looking back at the historical event of what God did and what we're going to read, God is going to do. But church, these are just a couple, just two of of many, so many different references in the Psalms, in Isaiah, in the New Testament, of looking back at this great moment and seeing who God has revealed himself to be. God is forever a redeemer, and the Exodus is just one of those many case and points that we have. He saves his people out of bondage. He hears their cry and responds in his timing. And this is a truth that is every bit as much applicable and necessary for us to remember as it was for them. Right? We can remember that, that, that the Lord who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he is the same redeemer that the people needed then. He's the same redeemer that we need now. So we can apply this. It does apply, and we want to grab a hold of this. So that's how the book of Exodus really starts out, is talking about this, this, this redemption. And that's what we're going to look at and trying to set some of these things up, setting the stage for redemption. We're going to see in chapter 1 that redemption really has, has two parts. There's redemption from the human perspective. There's redemption from God's perspective. So think about these two parts. Part 1 from the human perspective, is redemption means to be set free from bondage. Repentance from a biblical perspective, from a human perspective, looking at what the Bible says, how the Bible defines it, is it's being delivered from something, set free from bondage, called out of something that you yourself couldn't get out on your own, right? You've been redeemed. You've been delivered. So in chapter 1, we're going to be told what's going on in Egypt. The stage is going to be set where we're all going to say, yeah, I agree, they need a deliverer. Now I know why they're crying out for deliverance. I see what's going on there. But then we're going to see part 2 in the weeks to come, that redemption from God's perspective, it's, it's the act of regaining something. It's the act of buying something back that belongs to you. Right? I read this example of a, of a little boy who built a boat. He builds this boat with his, with his bare hands. He loves this boat. And he goes and he takes the boat on a little creek one day. And it's kind of working out. But he finds the creek is moving too fast. And so he can't hold it. And so he's trying to hold the rope. And the boat gets swept away by the current. And he loses it. So he's, oh, I lost the boat that I built. I missed it. But a couple weeks later, he sees that same boat in a thrift store window. And he's like, that's my boat. And he goes in there and it's being sold for a few dollars. He says, Sore, that's my boat. He says, well, I don't know that's your boat. Somebody else brought it in. And so he goes home and has to pay some money to buy his boat, right? But what does he do? He redeems that which was his. And he goes, I love this boat now even more because it's doubly mine. I made it and I paid for it. And think about what that means for you and I. I made you, the Lord would say, we are the creation of God. We are we're made in his image, and then he paid for us with his own precious blood when Jesus died on the cross. He loves us doubly because he created us and he paid for us. But that's the idea of redemption from God's perspective. It's buying something back, paying the ransom to set something free that belongs to you. And, and we're going to see in chapter 1, the people that we're talking about that just so happen to be in bondage in Egypt, um, they're God's people. They're the people that God attributes his name to. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the people we're going to see is the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's people. So he's going to deliver them and buy them back, redeem them, and we're going to see that. So I think maybe now it's time to actually get to the text. I mean, are you ready? Anyone like, all right, can we get to the text finally? All right, thank you for enduring that long introduction. But let's actually get to the text Now, Exodus chapter 1, verse 1 says this, Now, 
these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was already in Egypt. And Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now I want you to see this this line in verse 1. It says, now these are the names of the children of Israel. If we were studying Exodus, immediately after completing a study of the book of Genesis, that line that we just see in verse 1 would make a lot more sense to us, or maybe be a little bit more familiar to us. And it'd be more familiar to us because it's almost verbatim what is said in the book of Genesis. Genesis 46 verse 8 says this, now these were the names of the children of Israel... Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. And you're going to get the same list or a very similar list that we just read here. It's almost the same exact statement. And I bring this up because it's communicating the same thing. There's a connection. This is the same family. This is the same situation that we saw set up in Genesis. The the book of Exodus starts out with this word, now. Now this happened is what is being communicated. Now this is what happens next within this family as you follow this this line through history. If you go to the next book of the Bible, you go to Leviticus, the book after Exodus, you're going to see that the same word is used now. Now this happens next in the continuation of this family's history. You go to the book of Numbers, the book after Leviticus, which is the book after Exodus. I'm trying to say this for myself so I can remember it. It starts with the word now. Because it's, again, it's a continuation. You go to the book of Deuteronomy, which is starting to conclude. It says, these are the words of Moses. And you start to get the final words that God commanded Moses to communicate to these people. But I bring all of this up to say, it's all one book. We look at it as the first five books in our Bible. But the Jewish people, the Hebrew Bible, it's just one book. It's just the Torah. Right? They don't break it up into five books. It's just one book, which is important for us to understand the book of Exodus because we're kind of jumping in at like chapter five-ish of the same book. So we need to do some history, a little bit more history. It's kind of, I could have put this in the introduction, but that would have really bored you too much. So I kind of stuffed it into these verses. But I'm going to talk some more introduction, some more history. But we need to know that. We need to know what's going on in Genesis, what led this family to Egypt, what family we're even talking about, why they're even here in the first place. And so we need to know that. So I'll try to make this as quick as I can. But it all started back in Genesis chapter 12 when God made a promise to a man named Abraham. God has called Abraham to follow him. Abraham does follow him. Abraham becomes not only the father of the Jewish people, but the father of faith, the father to us all. But but God gives Abraham a promise in Genesis chapter 12. The fancy word for it is the Abrahamic covenant. God makes a covenant with Abraham. Now there's three parts. He says, Abraham, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. It's going to be your inheritance. I'm giving it to you. I'm going to then give you descendants. You're going to have a whole lot of children, a whole lot of grandchildren, great-grandchildren. They're going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, Abraham. You're going to have a lot. And then number three, he says, I'm going to bless you. You will be a blessing in you there will be, speaking of a seed promise, in you there will be a blessing that all the families of the earth will have the ability to be blessed by. 
right? And that's speaking of Jesus. That's speaking of the, the seed going through Abraham, the seed of the woman that was promised in Genesis chapter 3. It will go through this family line. And Jesus will be that seed born of a virgin. We talked about this over Christmas time. And when we put our faith in him, all those who put their faith in Jesus, we are blessed. He is the one through whom all families can be blessed. So that's the promise that's given initially to Abraham. But Abraham doesn't have any heirs. Remember, he says, who's going to be my heir? One that's in my household? Just somebody who's, who's there? And, and God says, no, you're going to have a promised son. And Abraham kind of takes a little detour, and there's the whole Hagar situation, and we don't got time to get into that. But eventually, Isaac's going to be born. So Abraham's going to have Isaac. Isaac is the promised child who's born through Abraham and his wife Sarah in their old age. And so that seed promise goes through Isaac. Then Isaac's going to have two children, Jacob and Esau, and that's going to get all super complicated. It's going to be a hairy situation at one point, but eventually the promise is going to go through Jacob. Jacob's life is incredibly complicated, kind of like an organized train wreck most of the time, if there's even such a thing, right? But eventually, Jacob's going to have a moment where he's going to wrestle with God. And when he kind of snookered the birthright and kind of traded it out for a pot of stew, and there's all those crazy things that go on, Jacob's eventually going to wrestle with God. And it's going to be the moment where Jacob says, I won't let you go until you bless me. And it's kind of like this one moment where Jacob's saying, I've recognized that everything I've ever done in my life has been me heel-grabbing, deceiving people, and at this point, I want it done right. I'm clinging on to you, God, and I won't let you go until you bless me. And God is going to bless him, but it's kind of in a weird way, not the way that we would think we would want to be blessed, but he's going to touch Jacob's hip, and he's going to kind of knock it out of socket. He's going to shrink a ligament in his hip that is going to inflict an injury upon Jacob that will result him limping the rest of his life. But it's through that moment Jacob is going to learn trust and dependence upon the Lord and he will eventually have his name changed from Jacob, one who struggles against God, to Israel, one who is willing to be governed by God. So that moment starts to happen. So Jacob is now renamed Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, slash Israel, right? And then he's going to have 12 sons. Now that seed promise that we talked about is going to go through one of Jacob's sons named Judah. Jesus is born of the tribe of Judah. But there's another son that this Genesis account, going into where we're at now in Exodus, shows us through another son named Joseph. And Joseph, he's got some awesome gifts. He's a, he's a neat son. He's a noble son. He, he does the right thing. And he's got this cool-looking coat of many colors. And he's kind of his father's favorite, which is not a good family dynamic and kind of causes some problems. But he's eventually going to have some dreams. God's going to start giving this guy dreams and say, Joseph, you're actually going to rule over your brothers and your father. Right? They're all going to bow down to you. And Joseph thinks, you know what? I bet my brothers really want to know that. I bet they really want to know what God is going to do. So I'm going to tell them. And so he tells them and their brothers they're not as excited to serve Joseph as Joseph is to rule over them. So they're filled with envy and they plot against killing Joseph. I told you, family dynamics, not the best, kind of an organized train wreck, but that's what happens. However, at the last minute, they decide we don't want to kill Joseph. We're going to sell him into slavery because, you know, we think that's going to be better. But Joseph is going to be taken down into Egypt, and now you all go, now that means we're finally coming back to the book of Exodus, and the history lesson is starting to end. Dots are being connected. But I want you to see that Joseph goes down into Egypt. Joseph kind of goes before the rest of the family and God is going to start raising him up there. Joseph is going to get to the point where he's going to say, all that happened to me, what man intended for evil, God used for good. 
He's able to say, in other words, God is a redeemer and he was able to buy back what seemed like lost years and use them all for his glory and a great deliverance for his people. So Joseph is now in Egypt. Joseph gets raised up. He becomes the second most powerful person in all of Egypt because God gives him wisdom to interpret a couple of Pharaoh's dreams. Remember the seven years of plenty, the seven years of bumper crop, followed by the seven years of incredible famine. Joseph is prepared. All the food is stored and stashed in the, the barns and storehouses in Egypt. And this famine is so intense, it's, it's resulting in everybody coming to Egypt in order to survive. Even Israel, Jacob, who's living in, in the land of Canaan with his sons, they all have to come to Joseph. And they eventually do. Joseph reveals himself. Great family reunion. Tears are shed. Food is eaten. Hugs are given. And now the whole family is in Egypt. But catching kind of up where we're at here is Moses tells us at the beginning that there's a 70-person family. There's 70 people at the very beginning of this journey into Egypt. This family is going to grow in exponentially. But there, be, there comes this point. I'm trying to like find where I'm at on my notes. I just kind of went off there for a while. But I need to pick it up. I need to find out where I'm at here. So they're given some land here in Goshen, the, the Nile River Delta. But, but at this point, Pharaoh understands, I owe everything to Joseph. Joseph has done this incredible work. God has raised him up, so I owe everything. Yes, you can have your family come, and yes, you can have your family here. And he gives them the choice land in Goshen. And, and all of this was foretold by God beforehand. Genesis chapter 15, God speaking to Abraham, back when his name was still Abram. He wasn't eating ham quite yet. I don't think he maybe ever ate ham, by the way. But here we have it. He, it says, Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, what we're reading here is this is the Lord speaking beforehand to Abraham what is going to happen to those descendants who are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. They're going to go to, they're going to, go to a land that's not theirs. They're going to be sojourners. They're going to be strangers. And they're going to be afflicted for hundred years. And that's kind of catching us up now where we're at, what we just read. This family of 70 is going to spend 400 years in Egypt. That much time is going to pass. And God is going to use Egypt like an incubator to grow this nation exponentially, to grow them into a very powerful people, to be able to kind of foster and, and hone some of their, their purity as a nation, their purity as a people through the afflictions that they're going to experience in Egypt. By the time we get to chapter 12, we're going to be told that there's 600 adult men. And this is kind of their fighting force. There's 600,000 soldiers in Egypt at this time. That's not accounting women and children and older men who are no longer of that fighting age. That's where we get that idea that there's, there's approximately 2 million people making up the nation of Israel at this time. When Moses kind of says they, they increased exceedingly, they grew exceedingly mightily. Think about 2 million people strong from 70 to 2 million people here in Egypt. Now that's a lot of people. If you think of the Tri-Valley, where most of us live here, the Tri-Valley, there's, there's, there's about 360,000 people in the Tri-Valley, right? Two million. You'd have to take all of Alameda County, all of Contra Costa County, combine them to get over two million people. That's what we're talking about. Two million people are making up this nation. That's a lot of people. 
And this is really showing us this is God's blessing upon them. This is God fulfilling the promise he made to Abraham. They were going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and they're well on their way as God is making them a great nation. But then this happens, verse 8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. And so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field." All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So notice in verse 8 it says, Eventually a new king, a new pharaoh arises, and he does not know Joseph. Now that's kind of strange for some of us. We say, what do you mean he doesn't know Joseph? What do you mean he doesn't know their own history? How, how can he not know what was taking place in, in Egypt? That's like for us saying, you know, George Washington, who's that guy? Never heard of him. Like quarter, what's a quarter, right? We wouldn't, well, hopefully we wouldn't say that, right? We, we want to understand what our history is about. And so, so they don't. So we say, why? Well, it's important to understand about this time, there is a changing of the guard within Egypt as a country, as a nation, during this time between the 17th and the 18th dynasty. Think about this word dynasty, thinking about it as a ruling family. When there's a dynasty, you've got a, a monarch and then followed by his son or a daughter, someone blood-related. That's the dynasty, the ruling family, where there's going to be a changing of the guard between the 17th and the 18th dynasty. This 18th dynasty is going to come in and they're going to change the whole direction of the course of Egypt. And they don't have any care or concern or knowledge over what the previous regime's history was all about. They don't want to know. They don't care to know. They're charting a new course for the, the nation of Egypt. And so that's what it says when this new king, this new pharaoh comes up. He doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't have the appreciation for what was done earlier. He doesn't care to find out what has made Egypt such a great nation. He just knows out with the old, in with the new. And so now there's no appreciation for the Hebrew people, the family of Joseph, Joseph himself, and the children of Israel. This new pharaoh starts to resent them. He starts to fear them. He gets paranoid about them because he sees how great in number they are. And he starts to see they're really a threat. Because another occupying force can come here, get the Hebrew people on their side, and now they're going to be way too difficult to defeat. They're going to be mightier than we are. So he starts to say, what we need to do is reduce this threat. I want you to look at verse 10. Here's the plan. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Here's their motivation. Lest they multiply. This is all about, we want to stop this nation from growing. We want to prevent any more multiplication of number in this family. So that's the new, that's the new king, that's the new plan, and it's going to lead for some dark days for the children of Israel. And we're going to see this king's going to do four things. At least four things are recorded for us. 
Number one, they're going to start afflicting the children of Israel with heavy burdens. And we get the idea that was not happening before this new king arose. They were quite comfortable, and now it's going to get very uncomfortable. Heavy burdens are going to be placed upon them. Then they're going to be treated treated harshly and ruthlessly. Heavy burdens, treated with rigor, given very laborious tasks to rebuild supply cities or build them for their very first time. All in all, the children of Israel are going to start to be oppressed. And that word oppress, this, this affliction that we're talking about, it means they're going to be beat down. They're going to be brought low. Notice that their lives are going to be made bitter with hard bondage. And it's all in an effort that if you treat them harsh enough, they're no longer going to be able to multiply. Some are actually going to start to die off and the overall numbers of this nation is going to decrease. Yet, however, look at what actually happens. Verse 12 says, But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. The opposite happens. And we say, how does that make sense, right? There's only one explanation for that. And it's that God is with his people. God is in this situation. God is somehow strengthening them to endure what they're facing in this moment, as only God can do. Giving them the strength to persevere, giving the strength to endure, and somehow, as God can do, he's adding to their numbers, he's multiplying them, taking this difficult situation, and even bringing growth. But this only causes more dread in this new Pharaoh's heart, and it's going to lead him to taking further action. So verse 15 says, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra, and the name of the other Pua. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dwelt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So Pharaoh is going to take step number three here, and he's going to give the command to the midwives, these Hebrew midwives serving the other Hebrew women, these moms who are ready to give birth. And this is a command to the king. When you are helping those mothers deliver children, if you see that it is a male child, a son, you are to kill him. Now, I don't know exactly what, break his neck, throw him in the, we don't know, just kill him. You are to terminate this child in this moment. And I want you to think about the dread that it would have put over every single pregnant mom in this day because this is the day before ultrasounds and all the other cool fancy, fancy technology that tells us all these things about our children long before they're actually born. This was the moment of delivery that you found out the gender of your child. And so you lived in dread the entire time waiting for this to come. But what they're trying to do is if, if you kill this male child that's one less soldier in that potential army in this day, one less man to become a husband, one less man to become a father, one less man to continue to perpetuate his family line and multiply 
the nation of Israel within the land of Egypt. But I want you to see what this is. Not only is this demonic, we do not wage war against flesh and blood, but we wage war against powers and principalities that, that exalt themselves in heavenly places. This is demonic. But I want you to see just very practically what it is. What's the strategy to try and limit the nation of Israel? Take out the men. Render the men from being husbands and fathers, from leading their families. If you get rid of the men, the nation's going to start to suffer some depletion. And I want you to know the enemy has not changed his tactics even yet today. The enemy says, I don't want you, man, to act like the father you've been gifted the blessed opportunity to be. Man, I don't want you to act like the husband you've been charged before God to be. I don't want you to lead your family. If I can take you out, then I can steer the thing a couple different places any way that I want. And so, men, I want you to take this very seriously and kind of see this. This is still the tactic of the enemy today, to try and take the men out. And we need to say, Lord, not me. As for me, I'm going to seek the Lord. I'm going to serve the Lord. As for me and my house, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to cry out to the Lord evening and morning and at noon. I'm going to resist the enemy. I'm going to submit to God, resist the enemy, and he's going to flee from me. I'm going to fight for my family. I want you to purpose that in your heart because that's a tactic that we're seeing here. This is a command from the king. Take out the male children. Think about what that next generation is going to result if God doesn't respond, but he's going to respond. But notice that that's a command from the king. Now next, you ladies, look at this example that you have. There's going to be the name of two women, two midwives that are going to have the opportunity to choose for themselves who will they serve, right? Is Pharaoh king? Is this earthly world leader king? Or is the Lord God king for you ladies? That's what these two women are going to decide. Verse 17 says, they feared God more. When it came from a command from an earthly king to do something that is contrary to God's word, they're going to show, we don't fear you more than we fear the Lord God our king. And so they're not going to obey this commandment from this Pharaoh. And I want you to catch this part. We have both of their names written down in God's word for all of eternity. Shifra and Puah. Think about that. The word of God, this, this is eternal. It says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. And we have those two women's names because of their heroic faith and their obedience to the Lord God, their king, written in the Bible forever. There's a lot of debate about who was this Pharaoh? What time period was this taking place? And, and we don't get the Pharaoh's name written down in the book of Exodus. Why? Because God doesn't care to remember his name for all of eternity. But he cares to record the act of faith done to, to glorify his name by these two women. Think about how powerful that is. I love that part of this little account here in this moment. God sees them. God remembers them. God has their names written down and recorded forever. And then God is going to bless these two women because of their heroic faith. He's going to bless their households too. They're going to have more children. They're going to be blessed because of the obedience they give to the Lord, which means even more multiplication is happening, which means Pharaoh is still trying to stop a work of God, and he can't. Like Amelia is going to say, why would we think we can stop a work of the Lord? We cannot stop him. We will be find fighting, found fighting against God, and that is no long, that's, no longer, that's not the place I'd ever want to be in. But that's what's going on here. Now, Pharaoh is going to find out about this, and it's going to get a little interesting because he's going to confront these midwives and he's going to say, what's going on here? Why are these male babies still alive? 
and they're going to say, oh, uh, it's because the Hebrew women are lively, right? They're, they're delivering their children a lot faster than the Egyptian women do. And then again, we're kind of like, I don't know, is that a lie? I mean, it, it kind of sounds like a lie. You can kind of say, well, maybe it was true. I think it's kind of a lie. I'm more comfortable. I'm uncomfortable, but I realize it's probably a lie, right? I think they lied. They lied here. And we're going to say, well, what does that mean? Does, does that mean that I have justification to lie? I mean, what, what's going on? Well, I want you to think about this situation like Rahab. When Rahab hides the spies in Jericho, remember, the king is going to send messengers to her and say, hey, there were some spies here. Did you see where they go? And what does she do? She lies. Not only has she hid them herself, but she says, oh, they left. I don't know where they are, which again was a lie. She hid them and she knew right where they were. We're saying, what's going on here? Why are they praised? Why, why are we seeing God respond to them? And, and here's the answer. God is blessing them, rewarding them because of their great faith, right? They show faith. Both Rahab and these two midwives, they show faith in saying, we fear God more than whatever even the earthly consequences an earthly king can bring upon me. We fear God more. That's what's being praised. That's what's being rewarded. Now, what do we make about their lies? It is not a justification to do so at all. It's God's grace covering their faults as we need God's grace to cover all of ours. So that's what's going on. We read through those accounts. They're not praised for lying. They're praised for demonstrating great faith. And they're just like we are in need of God's great grace to cover their faults here. But that's, that's what happens. Now after that, Pharaoh's going to come up with his fourth and final plan. He's going to say, Every Hebrew son who is born in Egypt shall be cast into the Nile River. And we're going to see another family that is going to choose not to do it exactly that way. And God is going to use that situation. I encourage you to read ahead. But that's his plan to try and stifle the growth here in Egypt. But I want you to see this is what's setting the stage for redemption. We're not going to go into chapter 2 this morning. So again, please read ahead. We'll talk more about this in the weeks to come. But this is, this is setting the stage. We can come back to this idea and, and we can see this is how... God is beginning to do a work here amongst his people in Egypt. And we say, well, how? Well, he's actually starting to let the pressure be applied to them a little bit. He's allowing things to heat up a little bit. He's allowing some discomfort into their lives in order to get them crying out to him. And that's kind of a harder thing to really understand and realize, but I want you to know that is how God works in our lives. God allows sometimes for us to get a little uncomfortable So we would find ourselves crying out to him with a lot more desperation, with a lot more veracity, because we now recognize we really need him. And not just crying out to him because, you know, we miss him, we should, but we're crying out to him for deliverance, for redemption. We're going to see what we just read about is going to be the catalyst for the Jewish people in Egypt to start crying out to the Lord in the evening, in the morning, and at noon, day and night, because they really need a deliverer now. And we don't have any record that that was happening when they were nice and comfortable. And that's just the way it works, right? God wants us to press in him. God doesn't say, you know what? I really want you to have have just a a total comfortable, cushy life, right? He says, I want you to be conformed into the image of my son, right? We have been predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus. And something we all need to know, Jesus learned obedience through suffering, Right, which means we get discomfortable sometimes. We have some difficulties and some trials and some afflictions, and through those things we learn perseverance and we learn character and we learn hope and we become more like Jesus. 
And that's what starts to happen here. So the stage is being set. This affliction, hard labor, bitter turn of events for the children of Israel. It's their catalyst to start crying out to the Lord. And he's going to hear them and he's going to respond to them. But I want you to catch this. It's going to be 40 more years of this. Because his Redeemer, the instrument God is going to use for redemption, he isn't born yet in chapter 1. He's going to be born in chapter 2. And then he's going to be 40 before God starts to move. So think about that. There's going to be a lot of time where all this is going on. It's only building the intensity and increasing the frequency of what God is going to do. That's what's happening. So this sets the stage for redemption. Now we'll pick this up more and kind of see what is going to happen and how it, how it kind of works out. But I, I want to take just a few more minutes and I want to make some application to our own lives. I want to take a look at this and say, all right, well, what does this mean to me? How can I apply this to my own life? How can I be encouraged or strengthened or reminded or, or corrected about my own way of thinking when I read about what we just read? And I think at least, there's multiple applications always, but I think there's at least two that spoke to my heart and I think perhaps are going to speak to your heart as well. So application number one, I think that we can all come to the grips and say, it kind of feels like I live in Egypt sometimes. Right? I think we can all say it just kind of feels that way, right? And, and maybe there's, there's varying degrees, but I think at least it feels like I kind of feel like a stranger in a foreign land. I think I kind of feel like things and the way they ought to go for me as a child of God, I think the way they should go, it doesn't seem like they go that way. It doesn't seem like everything works out the way I really want it to be. It feels like I too am in Egypt sometimes. I deal with affliction. I deal with heartache. I deal with heavy burdens. I deal with, with grief. And I, I just, I don't know that that's the way it's, it should be. And I think if you're saying that, you're right. It will not always be that way. When we are with the Lord in heaven for all of eternity, it's a place where there are no more tears, right? And that doesn't mean God is going to surgically remove your tear ducts. It means you're not going to have anything that's going to grieve you. There's going to be no reason to shed a tear because there's no more heartache. There's no more grief. There's no more cancer. There's no more disease. There's no more addiction. There's no more pain. That's, that's coming for us Christians. But we're still in Egypt here. And we are pilgrims and sojourners passing through this world. And it's not the most comfortable and it's not the easiest. And that's exactly the way God said it was going to be. That's what it's like living in this place. But I want you to see that just as the children of Israel finally saw and realized that, oh, I guess this is not the land that God promised us to be at. This isn't the land of Canaan. This is Egypt. Things had to get kind of hard for them before they started crying out to the Lord and saying, God, I really long for the place that you have for me. I really, really, really want to go to the place you've prepared for me, Lord. And that's a product of what this world should be doing in the heart of each of us Christians. With every passing year, with every, with every passing loved one, with every difficult situation, it should really start to create and build a longing for our true home, the place that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Longing for heaven, longing to be in this place, and wanting to recognize this earth is just not our home. We're sojourners, we're, we're passing through. And so I want you to remember that. I want you to, to think about it. And I want you to respond as the people of Israel respond, just crying out to the Lord, just praying, God, help me, help me see you. Help me walk with you. Help me have endurance and perseverance through this situation. I want to trust you. And I want to be used of you. If, if that's kind of you this morning, I just want you to be reminded of that. This season for the nation of Israel is the catalyst for the next season we're going to spend some time talking about, a lot of time in the book of Exodus. And it could be the same for you. If you found yourself and you know what I really need? I need an exodus from Egypt. Only know you have one in Jesus. 
Jesus is your exodus. Jesus is the one who can revamp your thinking. Jesus is the one who can turn this season around. Jesus is the one who can take your ashes and turn them into beauty. Jesus is the one to turn this tide around for you. So trust him or put your faith in him if you never have. Let Jesus be Lord. So be encouraged by that. But the second one I think that is also equally important and maybe for some of us Christians as well is I want you to see that you can still grow here in Egypt. I want all of us to know that we can still grow, we can thrive, we can multiply, we can increase exceedingly here in Egypt. We're seeing here, chapter 1, verse 12, which is such a powerful verse, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. We can grow under affliction. We can grow when it's hard. We can grow under heavy burdens. We can increase our faith and multiply. In Christ, we can thrive. As we abide in Christ, we can thrive. As we seek Him, as we find Him, as we cry out to Him, He strengthens us and we can grow here while we're here for as long as we're here. We can do that. We see this application right here. When you think of, of Jesus Himself, I know sometimes we think, why are we here? You know, why are we left here? If, if, we, if we put our faith in the Lord and now we're saved, we're like, if, if it's far better to be with you, Lord, then why am I still here? We say, I think, maybe I say that sometimes, maybe I'm the only one. But I want you, Jesus in John chapter 17, I put the reference verses in your study guide. Jesus, he, he kind of has the opportunity to pray. Maybe what we would think he would pray, Father, take them out of the world. We're like, just take us out, Lord. I want to be out. Remove us from this Egypt, right? Bring the exodus now to glory, please, in Jesus' name now. And we're like, ah, oh, he didn't yet. So what does that mean? I want you to remember what Jesus actually does pray in John 17. He says, I do not pray that you take them out of this world, but just that you would keep them from the evil one. That's what he prays. I pray that you would just keep them from the evil one. How is he going to do that? He prays, he says, sanctify them by your truth. He says, your word is true. So what does he pray? He says, I pray that you leave them here. You set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. I pray that you would write your word upon their hearts and my people would cling to it and submit to you, Lord, resist the enemy, and have you flee. That's what he really prays, and that's what we see them do in Egypt. He says, well, how do I know they're doing that in Egypt? Listen to this verse. This is a promise that God gives to Jacob before Jacob takes his family down into Egypt the first time. He says this, Genesis 46, verses 3 and 4. It says, So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt... For I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will surely bring you up again. That's the promise he has made. And I think somewhere in their hearts, they're clinging to this in order to be about the work of the Lord. And this verse is so encouraging to me because we Christians have the same promise. We just read Jesus saying, I'm not calling you out of the world. In fact, what does Jesus do? Matthew 20, he sends us into the world. He says, I'm sending you into the world. I want you to go, but I'm giving you the same promise. I will go with you, and there will come a time at the end of the age, I'm going to surely bring you out of it. There's an opportunity for us to be faithful here while we're here. This is not our home. We're passing through. There will come an end. Either our life ends or Jesus comes back to get us. Either way, it ends in glory. Us with Jesus. 
But while we're here, let's remember these promises. Let's cling to these promises. Let's know we can grow here. We can thrive here. As we abide in Christ, we can thrive in Christ. We can do all things. And so let's trust the Lord. Let's allow him, even when it's difficult. See the big picture. See the scope of who God is. He is a redeemer. And he's not finished with the work that he started in you and I. Now, the redemptive work is finished, but I'm meaning the day-to-day, the practical sanctification that he's doing. Let him have his work. Let him just do his will in your life. Don't get distracted. Don't get distraught. Don't get discouraged. Don't give up. Let the Lord have his way. Let the Lord show you who he is as you cry out to him, as you seek him, and you find him. Church, that is my prayer for you. That is my prayer for you individual as Christians. This book of Exodus is going to be an incredible journey. And we're going to have all these things that go along the way. But let's not remember who we're being shown. Let's not remember what God is showing us about himself. Right? That's the big takeaway. God gets the final say. God is redeemer. So let's rest in that. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And God, I know, I know, and you know far better than I do, but God, I know that there's, there's a chunk of people in here, probably more than I know, but not more than you know, Lord. That Father, I think what we just read has, has in a lot of regards, summarized the past few weeks or the past few months or maybe even longer of their lives. God, it has felt heavy. It has felt burdensome. It has felt rigorous. It has felt like affliction like a season of being beat down, brought low to a place where where they don't even know what's coming next. And God, I pray that as we come to you in this text, as we come to you in this moment, we would all say, you know what's coming next? Jesus, you're coming next. You're going to respond to the situation. You're going to bring a deliverance. You're going to bring an exodus from a previous season because you're about to do a greater work, a fresh work. And God, I just pray that for the hearts of my brothers and sisters here, especially those, God, who absolutely need to be reminded of who you are, what you have done, what you're still capable of doing. I just pray that you reach your righteous right hand right out of heaven and you place it upon the shoulder of the one who needs it. And you would say, you are not defined by your past. You are not defined by the chains that I'm about to break. You're defined as a child of mine. You're defined because you've been redeemed. God, I just pray that you would just touch them and Holy Spirit, you would just move and and break chains, break some of these patterns or some of these circumstances that, that we can all find ourselves in and bring deliverance. God, there is an exodus for your people. Jesus, you are our exodus. Lead us into the places that you want us to be. Lead us back to peace. Lead us back to sanctification. Lead us back to a place where we know we are near to you. God, continue to do this work. Continue just to move in the hearts of your people. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Reveal who you are to our hearts as only you can. God, we love you, Jesus, and just say, please continue the work as you settle upon your people. In Jesus' name.